Falofalava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Coming up, New Caledonia's pro-independence party leader lands himself in hot water. Also, as I got older, I really wanted to understand more and I found it was really hard to find answers. Just beneath the surface in PNG lies a sunken ship that went down in the 40s, a maritime disaster for Australia, and later on... We teach a lot about Aotearoa's colonial history, but we don't teach enough about New Zealand's Moana history and back to the Moana, to the Pacific. Lydia Lewis checks out a new report that takes a deep dive into the perceptions of the Pacific region. The president of New Caledonia's largest pro-independence party, Daniel Gore, has been referred to the public prosecutor for alleged cause for violence and sedition. The complaint was lodged by a coalition of anti-independence parties after Mr Gore's speech at the Caledonian Union Party meeting at the weekend. Mr Gore said there was a risk of there being no more provincial elections if the restricted roles are opened to people who arrived after the signing of the 1998 Numea Accord. The anti-independence coalition also says Mr Gore went too far, accusing him of sedition after he said his side might turn to foreign powers. Kuroi Hawkins spoke with senior RNZ Pacific journalist Walter Zweifel, who's been following developments. He began by asking about a recent meeting in Paris between the French government and New Caledonia's pro- and anti-independence parties discussing the future political status of the territory. The talks in Paris earlier this month were the first meeting of the pro-independent side with the French state on a sort of official level. Uh, Remember, there was a referendum in 2021 whose outcome the pro-independent side refuses to recognise as the legitimate outcome of the decolonisation process. Uh, the pro-independent side did not join any earlier talks that were organised by France last year. Those were only attended by the anti-independent side. It was significant from the French point of view to finally have a chance to talk to the pro-independent side. Their participation was contingent on the on the demand that there would be only bilateral talks between the pro-independent side and France and not involve the anti-independent side from the pro-independent side's point of view, the anti-independent side has already decided that it will not want to join any project that the pro-independent side has for a new country of New Caledonia. They say that any talks now have to be with France only, and the talks are to be about a timetable to attain sovereignty. So these are quite clear positions taken by the pro-independent side by excluding the anti-independent side at the moment from any sort of discussions, given that originally the Numea calls a a tripartite agreement that did involve the anti-independent side. Now, um, off the back of this, um, Daniel Gore has um, spoken to the party to his party about the the visit, what exactly was he saying? He restated the demand that any discussion with France have to be about decolonization, about returning sovereignty to the Canex. He said that France was somewhat under a misunderstanding of what these talks in Paris were about, suggesting that France wanted to have concrete decisions on how to advance Uh, New Caledonia with a new statute, but he says now in the first round, uh, France has to acknowledge that uh, the pro-independence side wants to have the independence and any discussion could not take place in Paris. They have to be taking place in New Caledonia. 
he went on to criticize uh, France uh, and the Macron presidency uh, in the international or regional context, uh, saying that uh, France was essentially a small European country, lonely or in the Pacific context. Uh, New Caledonia was a pawn for, for French international politics then pointing out that uh, the Canex, uh, you know, they have options, they want to have their independence, talking about seeking support outside, talking to foreign powers, which of course is uh, something that uh, stirred controversy in New Caledonia earlier, question whether there would be any Chinese interests uh, that could be contacted in this context. Uh, the position of Daniel Gua was again to go back to the very basics, and that is the arrangement with France back in the 80s was to have a decolonization process with this Nomia Accord. And um, Gua insists that this process has to be concluded with New Caledonia attaining independence. The key point, however, was that Gua says that there cannot be any change to the electoral rolls. The definition of the electoral for the provincial election is such that you have to be a long-term resident, that is, someone who had been established in New Caledonia by 1998, or an indigenous Canuck person. Uh, the anti-independent side says now, after these referendums, which were no to full sovereignty, uh, French settlers have to be given voting rights as well. The New Caledonian citizenship is defined as people who are Canucks or these former settlers. So to open up the role would just eliminate the concept established in the Nomi Accord of these of this New Caledonian citizenship. Uh, Goa says that there can be no change to that. And he said if there's going to be uh, a unilateral decision by France to alter this, there will be consequences. Uh, what they are uh, are not clear, but he says they will not allow any change of this sort to be implemented, saying the planned provincial election next year uh, will not take place if there is a change to the electoral. This is, of course, in complete contrast to what the anti-independence side expects and wants. Now, leading anti-independence politician Sonia Baches has responded to these comments. What, what has she said? She considers that the comments made by Daniel Goa, his intransigence in the question of the electoral uh, amounts to incitement to violence. She says her side has uh, approached the French public prosecutor, uh, obviously wanting to have an investigation into whether this amounts to incitement to violence. Uh, she also accuses uh, Goa of sedition by uh, alluding that there could be another power involved in trying to sort out this independence question for New Caledonia. The anti-independence side wants the election next year to go ahead with uh, an electoral role open to the settlers from the beginning of this century as well. Uh, the French government has already said that uh, the election next year cannot be held with the electoral role that we have in place now. The interior minister, Gerald Damana, uh, has suggested that there should be a change to this. Uh, it can be changed, but that will involve the change of the French constitution because the Nomi Accord, with all these provisions, is enshrined in the French constitution. The argument on the pro independent side is that by having it enshrined, this is an irreversible 
decision to have this new Caledonian citizenship and restriction. Uh, the anti-independent side considers that it, the arrangement is a transitory one that was only valid for the duration of the Mir Accord. So there are going to be legal arguments as well on uh, to what extent the provisions can be reversed or whether they are uh, irreversible. An Australian woman with long links to Rabel in Papua New Guinea says it's tremendous that the sunken Japanese freighter Montevideo Maru has been found. The ship was carrying 1,060 people, almost all soldiers and civilians from Rabel, when it was torpedoed by an American submarine in July 1942. An estimated 979 died, making it Australia's worst maritime disaster. Last week, the Montevideo Maru was found off the west coast of the Philippines, 4,200 metres below the water surface, by the Fugro Equator, in an expedition led by the Silent World Foundation. Andrea Williams, the chair of the Rabaul and Montevideo Maru Society, is also on the Fugro Equator. She reminisced with Don Wiseman about the find and her association with Rabaul. That goes back to, I guess, well, my, my grandfather was on the boat and also a great uncle, my grandmother's brother. And they were living in Rabaul before World War II started. And my grandmother and family were evacuated, leaving my grandmother left her husband and brother there. And, of course, after the war, my grandmother was evacuated. And then after the war, they wanted to go back. And, and eventually my father married. And, you know, we had, as I said, we grew up in Rabaul. And we always knew the story of the Montevideo Maru. Everybody knew, you know, that the men had gone with it. But as I got older, I really wanted to understand more. And I found it was really hard to find answers. And I think many other families were in the same boat, really. So I um, eventually, I um, I would, you know, write to the news channels before Anzac Day and say, you know, how about mentioning it, the Montevideo Maru, because it was never mentioned. You never sort of got that national recognition for it. The men seemed to me to be forgotten, except for by their families. And often the families lived in, well, the families of the soldiers, of course, lived in isolated places. They didn't know other, other family members. For us, you know, in Rabaul, we knew some of the other families, of course, because the town is smaller. So eventually we formed a group back in early 2009 and we put the word out and we gradually gathered families from all over Australia. Actually, there were three New Zealanders on the boat as well, on the Montevideo Maru. And there were people from other countries as well. As we know, there was Norwegians. They were on a, on a ship in Rabaul at the start of World War II. And, of course, there was the Japanese crew. But there were people from Britain and from Solomon Islands. And one's even listed from Papua New Guinea. I guess he was born up there. So we formed a group and, and we found that having gatherings was really comforting for the families because they could talk about it to other people who understand their generational grief, I think, really. And you'd find in the early days... Of of course, we had more of the siblings of those who had died on the Montevideo Maru. Siblings were still alive and also the more of the children. There are still many of the children still alive and it's great that it's happened, that this discovery has happened in their lifetime. That's very rewarding. But also, of course, the families have carried that on now and, and we're finding that younger, you know, younger and younger family members are coming to the services that we have annually and, and the events that we have. So it's very rewarding to know that, that there is more recognition for those who died on the Montevideo Maru and that the men are not forgotten. There has been criticism in the past that the authorities in Australia didn't want to attract attention to uh, this event because they were embarrassed. 
Well, that's right. That's correct. I mean, they certainly, um, when Pearl Harbor happened on the 7th of December, there was an announcement made on the 11th of December that nobody would be evacuated from the New Guinea Islands. And then next day, the 12th of December 1941, that was reversed and they decided to evacuate women and children. Boys under 16 were evacuated. Certainly there were boys 16 and over who remained. And in one case, there was a boy who was 15. He was working at the time and he wanted to stay with his father, as you can imagine. And the deputy administrator actually put the decision onto his mother and said, well, she has to make the decision. And as a mother myself, I just can't imagine having to make that decision. But you get a son who's 15 and working and he wants to stay with dad. And so the ship had people from 15 to, you know, in their 60s on it. And then during the war, the women and the families just heard nothing from their men. They... um, A few of them got a letter that was dropped over Port Moresby in April 1942. And all the letters that were received basically say the same thing, something similar to, you know, I am a prisoner um, being looked after and I'm being looked after well and fed, etc. They basically say the same wording. But only some of the families got that, not everyone. I know our family didn't get one. And then there was nothing till the end of war. and, And some people found out, I know that some women were going home on the bus and reading the paper and the person next door and found out that over a thousand men from Rabaul had died with the Montevideo Maru. So you can imagine the shock and horror of that. And they just couldn't find out any more information. So it was nearly four years from December, almost Christmas Day, 1940, uh, December 41 to October 1945. So nearly four years before they actually found out what happened to their men. It was a time very hard because you can imagine there are soldiers' families from Australia because the Lark Force was the battalion that went up to Rabaul and one independent company to New Ireland. But then there was the, the, the families that actually lived in Rabaul. There were many Australian families because it was Rabaul was then the Australian capital of the United Nations mandated territory of New Guinea and it was like any other town anywhere else and of course it had you know many Papua New Guineans living there many Chinese too so unfortunately and very sadly um, only a few women and children were evacuated were able to be evacuated I think in hindsight we now know that shipping was an issue of course terrible terrible time for all those that lived there and of course women who were evacuated had lost their homes and their friends and their men and their incomes and evacuated with just a, a small suitcase, a bit like a cabin bag these days, and uh, that's all they had. So they had to sort of rebuild their lives again, and, and some women had to actually farm their children out because they had to go out to work. And so there were many, many difficult circumstances that they had to overcome. And then after the war, of course, there was nothing and they couldn't find out anything. So that was really hard too. There was no inquiry and it was many, many years before people could, 30 years or, or however many years it is for um, secrets in our archives to come out. So gradually people would research and find it. The families, of course, always wanted to know, you know, do you think the Montevideo Maru will ever be found? You know, so it's been tremendous that this expedition was able to occur and we've been able to, to find the answer to that. What will happen now to the wreck? The wreck will be left as a sacred site. It's not going to be touched. At least we've had a service over the site of the wreck. That was a tremendously moving experience, as you can imagine. You just, you know, being out on the Fugro where I am at the moment, I'm out in the 
on the Fugro equator and you've had the vast deep blue ocean just spread all around you and, and just think about all the lives that were lost and having a service over the site was tremendously special and very, very moving. We'll get a few more photographs. They're gradually being developed because it takes ages. It's been fascinating to be on the ship and understand all the technical aspects of being able to send an automatic underwater vehicle down 4.2 kilometres. You think about the 4.2 kilometres, it's just such a huge distance. And of course, the AUV has done a few trips down there at different heights sure that it didn't touch or go near so nothing will be touched down there it will be left as a, a, a very special and sacred site a world first report gauging new zealanders perception of the pacific is already making waves the pacific perceptions report was launched just before christmas last year it asked participants a range of questions, including if they were aware of past events such as the infamous Dawn Raids, with 85% of respondents saying yes. Pacific Cooperation Foundation Executive Director David Vayafe says the report provides a baseline for change. New research has been released and it's been described as a unique deep dive into relationships between Aotearoa New Zealand and Pacific peoples. Tell me about the report and the significance of it. New Zealand is a Pacific nation and has had strong ties uh, with the Pacific initially through Tangata Whenua and then through you know, the 1950s when second migration of Pacific peoples, namely my, my parents came during that period. And so forth. And when they came in the 1950s, they came for a purpose. They came to fill jobs um, in factories and so forth that Kiwis didn't want to do as such. But fast forward, Pacifica now make up nearly 10% of the population. Yes, we still work in factories, but in a lot of the businesses, we own those factories. You know, we're in all the halls of parliament. Pacific Woman is the, is the Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand. Pacific have become part of New Zealand society. So we, we decided to do this report basically because New Zealand's population, you know, 1950s was less than a million people. As such, now it's five million people and very diverse. So we wanted to get a snapshot of New Zealanders' views today of Pacific, the Pacific region, and engaging with the Pacific. And it's a very insightful report because for a lot of Pacifica, none of these things are new to us. The results aren't new to us. But for a lot of other people, it, it's it's quite shocking and the things they didn't realise, and, and so forth. And then uh, a prime example is when it comes to like Pacific greeting. People know Fijian, and maybe you know a little bit of Tongan, but they hardly know what the New Wayan one is. Uh, when it comes to the Pacific, people's general knowledge is it of the Pacific is basically sun, sea, and surf, holy destination, nothing else. They don't realise the entire region is New Zealand's third largest trading partner with over $2 billion in exports going out and a billion dollars of imports coming in as such. Over half of the people surveyed you know, said that the Pacific was vitally important to New Zealand's economic future as such. But then when we asked the question of focus groups that New Zealand is a Pacific nation, therefore all people born here are Pacific peoples, the reaction was quite varied. Some from the very extreme of hell no, you know, um, to others where I can live with that. I'm a Kiwi, I'm a Pacific person. Yeah. Is um, New Zealand a Pacific nation? It calls itself a Pacific nation. The Pacific considers it as a Pacific nation. It's always been a Pacific nation as far as we are concerned. But it's people within, you know, um, all nations, all, all Pacific nations are nations of, of, 
of immigrants at one point in time. New Zealand is just the last, Aotearoa is just the last place to be populated by um, Tangata Whenua, Polynesian. So it's always been a Pacific nation, part of Pacific, part of the Moana as such. But, you know, new generations, um, new thinking, you know, people, you know, some people are mixed about that. And others think, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm born and raised here, you know, family's been here for a few generations. We are part of New Zealand, New Zealand's part of the Pacific, as such. So, And people but, knew you know, a lot about Polynesia and Melanesia, less about Micronesia as well, which I guess wouldn't be much of a surprise. What does yeah. that tell you about New Zealand? Yeah, well, basically it's, it's about engagement. It's about education. You know, it highlights the fact that what are we teaching in, our, in schools about Aotearoa, Aotearoa's history. We teach a lot about Aotearoa's colonial history and, and connections back to Europe, but we don't teach enough about New Zealand's uh, Moana history and back to the Moana, to the Pacific uh, as such. So, you know, it, it does raise, you know, some questions. And that's the whole purpose of this report. We wanted it to challenge the narrative around thinking and engagement with the Pacific, you know, and trying to get people to think outside the sun, sand and surf, you know, image and see beyond that and see, you know, this is a this is a region of the 900 square kilometres, you know, uh, with a population of over 12 million people, you know, uh, and, and that and that it's part of New Zealand or Aotearoa is part of the Pacific. And Dwayne The Rock Johnson also pops up. Can you tell me about why his name pops up, please, and what the yeah. results were? Yeah, sure. You know, we, it's, you know, we surveyed 2,300 New Zealanders up and down the country in all corners. Um, and we also did um, five focus groups totaling about 60 people. So one of the questions, and well, we put up a whole image to see who, um, if people connected with them being Pacifica. You know, uh, well, Pacific Pacific, of course, Dwayne Johnson topped the, topped the um, survey there with 86% people identifying him. But the second one, which was interesting, was Pippa Wetzel. 68% of the population identified her. Yes, she is uh, Pacific, you know, Samoan heritage. Third was Chris Farfoy, former parliamentarian. David Tool was fourth. Richie Bulmer, um, was, you know, was the fifth. Then you had a prime minister, someone prime minister, and then in sixth place was Adrian Orr, the governor of the Reserve Bank. 35% of the population knew he was of Cook Island's heritage and descent as such. And then right at the bottom, you know, we had a young um, Pacifica um, Samoan climate change activist. Brianna uh, Fruayan. Fruayan, and she was only 10%. So you see, you, see, you know, but beyond sports and Hollywood and that, Kiwis, you know, um, find it hard to sort of connect with Pacific peoples. But interesting thing is that in the focus groups we, uh, that we had, and they were a mixture of quite a bit of people, the focus groups were made of people who looked Pacifica, who looked European or Baalangi, who looked Asian. But most, most, a lot of them had uh, Pacific heritage, you know, um, who said their grandparents was Pacifica or their great grandparent was. So it was really interesting. So, it just shows that, you know, what you see on the outside is not necessarily what you know and understand what's on the inside as such. And that's the exciting thing is that, you know, a lot of people are now starting to connect with their Pacifica heritage as such. Finally, you touched on this a little bit earlier on um, in the interview, but what are your hopes from this report? What 
needs to change and that is obvious change is needed from this report. Understanding. Better partnership, collaboration of the region. New Zealand is surrounded by Pacific. But that includes Australia. You know, Aboriginal people are cast as Pacifica. We cast them as Pacifica uh, as, as such. You know, but the important thing is, is that people have an understanding of where New Zealand fits in this part of the world, where we sit as a as a member of the Pacific Farnau, Pacific Ainga, as such. You know, New Zealand's tenants have played a big mother role, you know, for a number of decades. But in saying that, you know, it's understanding that, you know, it needs there are eighteen other independent countries and, and territories out there that are um are all different and unique and contribute to what is known as the Moana. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rndi.com slash programs or you can download us on Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. From myself and the amazing team here at RNZ Pacific, so far so far.